0: Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Good evening, guys. Ooh, it's on. It's very nice. Yeah, hot mic. Awesome. How are you guys doing? My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, For those watching from home, hello, hello again. And to Mark and Amanda, it's good to see you virtually, I suppose. Mark, it's good for you to see me, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Nick really liked that one. Well, uh, if, if you're joining us for the, for the first time, we're going through a series on Colossians called Held Together. We're looking at this book, which talks about such a high view of who Jesus is, as Paul's painting this picture of the king who has overcome all things, who is before all things, that all things are held together in him. We've been following then what is the implication of that into our own lives. And and as we continued on last week, um, Nick started to talk about this, this shift in the letter from maybe this more high-level theology of who Jesus is and this, this abstract picture, it can feel abstract, into the practical workings of the gospel, into the practical meaning of what this now looks like to say, follow Jesus in my marriage or in my parenting or in the other relations I might have. This, this ethic that Paul is, is saying that we're to have is an ethic of love towards one another. And what I mean by love, I mean this, as Scott McKnight says, that love is a rugged covenantal commitment to another person, to be with that person, and for that person as you both journey into Christ's likeness. This love is a gift from God. That is, love is a fruit growing among the Colossians because they are God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved. God's love, His covenant commitment to be with and for His work among us empowers God's people to become loving as well. And so we're going to continue on in a part of the letter that we, we started two weeks ago as we had a, a panel up here talking about the outworking of the gospel and, and our marriages and our parenting. And now we're going to talk about a relationship that we don't See as much in our own context, but is still a reality around other parts of the world, and that is in the context of masters and of slaves. We're going to, as we look at this passage, my hope is that we see that as followers of Jesus, we are to be motivated by this rugged covenantal commitment to one another, this love and that we're to do what Jesus does. And one of those things that Jesus does, I believe, is partnering with God and confronting the systems, the powers and principalities which oppress people and deny them their core personhood. We're gonna unpack this passage a bit, try to understand it within its context, and hopefully see and ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to us today as Mercy Commons and what the implications are for us? I'll be reading out of um, N.T. Wright's translation of Colossians. I think it captures some of the nuances, some of the play on words that are pretty interesting to see. Don't mind the Britishness. Don't mind the, the yous and those things, or, or mind the Britishness. And so I'm going to go ahead and open this up, and it'll be on the screen so you can go ahead and follow along. But before I do that, let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are King, that you are Lord, that you hold all things together that you're a God who shows us what it means to follow you, that you empower us by the Holy Spirit as new creations in Christ to live out a way of life that is different from the world around us. So I pray this evening as we look at one of those relationships that we would be transformed and that we'd be people who live in a different way from the world around us today. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Colossians 22, three twenty-two, A word too for slaves... Obey your earthly masters in everything. Don't do it simply out of show to curry favor with human beings, but wholeheartedly, because you fear the master. Whatever you do, give it your very best, as if you were working for the master and not for human beings. After all, you know that you're going to receive the true inheritance from the master as your reward. It is the master, the king, that you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be paid back for wrongdoing, and there will be no favorites. And a word too for masters, do what is just and fair for your slaves. Remember that you too have a master in heaven. And I think as we hear this, especially in 2020, as we've been reminded of some of the racial injustices we see, we have seen in American history, we hear this passage and we kind of squirm and we're uncomfortable with the word slaves and masters and its language that doesn't feel right. In fact, some translations will even say, use the word bond servants, but I think it's helpful for us to maintain that word of slaves. And I think because when we, when we try to brush away from it, we forget the fact that Roman slavery was still a pretty awful thing. It wasn't necessarily based around this idea of, of holding someone to a scale of whiteness or ethnicity. It was different from the transatlantic slave in that sense. But the Roman Empire, part of the Roman Empire was still built on the buying and selling of human beings for the sake of having economic gain. It was still built on oppressing people for the sake of making life easier for others. Roman slavery was actually pretty common in Paul's day. It was common to see this sort of a relationship. Roman slaves had no rights or privileges, and actually, Roman law recognized the inalienable right a master had over a slave's body, to the point that a master had every privilege. The types of things that Paul talks about at the beginning of this chapter about putting off sexual morality, putting off these things, would have been good news to a slave, because a slave probably would have known that a master abused them physically, sexually, verbally, emotionally. They experienced that kind of abuse. Now, it was possible that a Roman slave could potentially purchase their freedom, but it wasn't necessarily as common to see a slave be set free by their master. There were some people that were were pushing in that direction, but it wasn't very common to, to see that happen. As this letter that is being read, you can also imagine within the community, you have masters, you have slaves, which Paul's addressing, but you might also have slaves who masters aren't Christians. So you can imagine there's this tension of hearing this new way of life, but knowing that you're not necessarily going to experience uh, experience this new life in Jesus in this specific new recasted vision for this relationship. And I want to make a few observations here, first and foremost, that Paul is not endorsing the institution of slavery. From cover to cover of the Bible, we encounter a God whose intention is for His intention is never that slavery should exist. When we look at the beginning of the Bible, we look in, in Genesis in the garden. We see that it has no place or purpose within God's good world. When we look to the end, we look at what's to come in Revelation, and, the, and when the when heaven and earth have been joined, when we're experiencing resurrection life with, with Jesus being present with His people, it has no place. So then it really has no place within God's world now. And so Paul's, Paul's intention here is to say, um, is to work within an institution and limit the effects of sin and limit the effects of the damage that it is doing to people. Esau Macaulay in his book, Reading While Black, puts it this way, slavery is a manifestation of the fall. And God begins the story of Israel by freeing them from slavery as a symbol of hope. My ancestors ancestors read it that way, and so do I. The Old Testament laws recognize the humanity and dignity of the enslaved person in ways that far outstrip Israel's contemporaries. It also provides various avenues for freedom. It is not everything, but it is enough, because I can follow the trajectory of those texts towards liberation. So when we look at the Old Testament, we do see texts that talk about slavery. We see this as a reality within the ancient Near Eastern cultures. But what I'm proposing is for for those texts, what, what is being shown is God's generosity. We see a movement towards liberation. We see a movement towards people being given dignity and respect. We see a movement of God trying to limit the effects and also show his generosity and his love. And in the New Testament, I believe that's what Paul is doing here. He may not be, I think in some ways we'll get to, I do think he's starting to make a movement and dismantle the power of the effects of that relationship within um, the Christian communities. But I believe that there's a sense of wanting to limit the damages of that. So that's great, you might say, but why doesn't Paul just push it for immediate emancipation for slaves in this letter? Why doesn't he just go the whole way and say, here, let's do it. Let's go for it. Well, I think we have to remember that the Roman society was different from our own society. He's not in a democratic society where he can just go and let me just mark straight up to Caesar. Let me go and just tell him to his face. And in the book of Acts, we see he goes through a process of wanting to talk to Caesar. So that's there. But it is a very different involvement that Paul has with government. But I do think, like I said before, that Paul is, is starting to dismantle the, the powers that slavery has over people, trying to strip it away, trying to separate the system that elevates the status of one person or over another. And why do I suggest that Paul is doing that within the institution of slavery? Well, earlier in chapter three, we're reminded we are reminded... Um, to put off these identities that give one power. That earlier in chapter three, it's talking about putting off that within Christ, there's no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, these sort of different realities that for the people at the time would say, like, well, I am circumcised. I'm, I'm not circumcised. I'm a Jew. I'm a Greek. I'm this, I'm that. These systems that people would use to maybe place themselves in power over another person. Paul's saying is that, what matters first and foremost is that you are in Christ, that that is what is first and foremost important. And so I believe by doing that, what he's starting to do is take away that power, that the power that you're to belong to is, is the resurrected king. It's not to be, well, I am a master and you are a slave, and that's what gives me authority over you. And I think another way that I see Paul is beginning to dismantle the power of, of slavery and the institution of slavery is actually for those who have uh, the scripture journals that we handed out at the beginning of the series, there's another book that's conveniently included or a letter included called Philemon. And this is a letter that was almost certainly written at the same time that Colossians was written and almost certainly read or performed around the exact same time. Within this letter, we see Paul's writing to Philemon, who's who's a, master, uh, who's a slave owner within this church. And Onesimus, his slave, had escaped from Philemon and come to Paul, knowing that if, if anyone can do something about my, me being a slave, if anyone can help me, it's got to be this Paul guy. He's got to be able to help me. So he comes to Paul and he becomes a follower of Jesus. And now Paul's in an interesting situation. And, and oftentimes within the New Testament letters, we see that Paul's working out the sort of pastoral moments of, now how do I handle this? What is, what's the implication of the gospel here? How, how is the resurrected king moving in this situation? And I think he, he, he makes some statements. He makes some sort of the things that he handles talking to Philemon. The suggestions that he makes, I, I believe, lead us to see, I, I think Paul here is, is arguing for the release of Onesimus and I think one of the ways he, do, he does that also is through the language of brother and sister, this familial, familial language that says, we you're brothers and sisters in this king. You're not masters and slaves, you're brothers and sisters. But I want to read a bit from, Anis, from the letter to Philemon to, to show some of this as well. Maybe this is the reason that Onesimus was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. That is, a dearly loved brother. He's especially a dearly loved brother to me. How much more can he become a brother to you personally and spiritually in the Lord? So if you really consider me a partner, welcome Anisimus as if you were welcoming me. And if he has harmed you in any way or owes you money, charge it to my account. I, Paul, will pay it back to you. I'm writing this with my own hand. Of course, I won't mention that you owe me your life. I love that he says that. I'm selling that to Hannah. Paul is so snarky. like kind of It's kind of cheeky. You're like... Oh, that's interesting, and well, I you know, pl- welcome him back. Do the right thing, and and I'll, I'm gonna come. Prepare a room for me, and, and don't. So it's almost like he's saying this, and he's like, "Don't worry, I'm gonna come and follow up to see what happened here." I love, I love that Paul says that. He's kind of snarky, but imagine with me that you're in this church. Imagine that this letter is being read, and you know of this relationship between this this tension between Onesimus and Philemon, and you're you're hearing this being read. You hear this this kind of long section of this, what's to be done between masters and slaves, and you're like, okay, this is, this is really cool how this is changing and changing the power dynamic, and it's telling us to be rooted first in Jesus. Like, oh, this is, this is revolutionary. This is amazing. And then also you hear this, this letter to Philemon and it's like, oh, is, what's gonna happen here? This is kind of interesting. It, it, I think it's helpful to maybe sit in that and imagine that you're, you're hearing this. You know that the tension in this community, you know this relationship is here. I think that's helpful. And I, so I think with that being said, the, the fact that Paul is, is calling the Colossians to put off the things that they place their identity, their power, their status in, mixed in with this combination of your brothers and sisters in Christ, first and foremost. It, it, this combined language shows that I believe that Paul is beginning to dismantle the power that slavery has over people. Uh, Esau Macaulay says it this way, talking about the effect of Paul's language. Paul's rhetoric makes it difficult for Philemon to make much of his status as owner and Onesimus his status as slave. Paul also uses familial language, calling Philemon his brother. The point is clear oneness in Christ transforms relationships. Society's values, society values those with power and status. Christians are to treat all people, slave, free, or prisoner, as family. This idea that slaves and masters are family undermines slavery. Who would enslave a brother or a sister? I think that's a good point. Who would enslave a brother or a sister? In my my opinion, Paul is hoping that, that the gospel, the outworking of that, the implication of being new creations in Jesus, that ultimately we look forward to the resurrection, we look forward to new heaven and new earth, that that begins to transform our reality now. That begins to transform our relationships now. That begins to transform how we treat people now. That is to change everything. And then the outworking of that, Paul is then inviting Philemon, the Colossian church, where there is this relationship of master and slave to reconsider what does this dynamic look like in light of who Jesus is? In light of now being brothers and sisters, what is this relationship to look like? And in my opinion, He's dismantling that power that it has that says, I'm your master and, and you're my slave. And instead saying, no, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. You have one master in heaven and we have one master that we follow and that is King Jesus. Yeah. And in the life, and I, I believe that anyone who... Um, I believe that the church has taken far too long within history to denounce the institution of slavery. We see that it took far too long for the church to stand up and denounce this. And and I I think that's something we have to to realize and grapple with, that it, it took us too long. And my prayer too is, as we continue to be a people who partner with Jesus, that we be sensitive to the ways in which he's inviting us to be, to be dismantling those structures and calling people to follow Jesus and calling people to be one in Christ, that we'd be sensitive to how he might be leading us. But I think in the life of Jesus, like I said earlier, we also see him confronting systems which oppress people and deny their core personhood as people made in the image of God. Jesus often associates and elevates the status of the people who are deemed impure, people that have no, who have no value and worth within Israelite society. He is fulfilling the vocation of Israel in doing this. As we look through the Old Testament, we see God also through the prophets calling Israel to repent. We see God through the prophets calling Israel to, sure, you, you, you are uh, sacrificing, you're tithing, you're, you're just getting all in this, but yet you're, you're neglecting the poor. You're neglecting the orphan. You're oppressing your own people. You've married yourself to power structures that end up enslaving you rather than allowing yourself to be married to me. And I think one instance, we see this, like I said, throughout the life of Jesus, but one instance that's been standing out to me more recently is is an an interaction where Jesus talks about Samaritans. Now, within Israelite culture, a Samaritan was about as worse as you could be. You could be, you know, you have, you have dogs, you have Gentiles, and you have Samaritans. And they were not looked upon well within society. And what Jesus does in a, in a few different instances, but what I'll read from here, is he elevates the status of the Samaritan. And I want to read from Luke 10, a story that many of us have heard before. And I want you to imagine you're hearing this, knowing that you kind of have a disdain for Samaritans. You don't really trust them. And then let's go ahead and hear how Jesus talks about Samaritans. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. "Teacher," he said, "what must I do to gain eternal life?" Jesus replied, "What is written in the law? How do you interpret it?" He responded, "You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbors as yourself." Jesus said to him, "You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live." But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. So he said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up and left him near death. Now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan who was on a journey came to where the man was, but when he, but when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. This is the same God who, who's been moved with compassion towards his people throughout history, and it's the Samaritan, the one who actually models this, moving with compassion towards the man who is injured. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days' worth of wages and gave him to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional cost. What do you think? Which one of these was a neighbor to the man who encountered the the thieves? Then the legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. He can't even say the Samaritan. That's how much of a disdain he has. He just says the one who demonstrated mercy towards him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. And I think this is an instance, one of many, where we see Jesus is elevating the status, elevating the, the position that Samaritans had within Israelite culture, and asking this Israelite to actually reconsider, well, how do I view this Samaritan? What is the, the language I'm using, the beliefs I have about this Samaritan? Is he's, he's calling the Israelites to turn away from these power structures of power, greed, politics, this religi- religiosity, um, this desire for these things, and then instead turns tor- turn toward the God of compassion. It's almost as if Jesus is saying that Samaritan lives matter. Jesus is confronting a way of Israelite life-, life that oppresses Samaritans and denies them their full worth and dignity and in a similar way, Paul is, is moving and the, doing the same movement through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is confronting a system of power, the system of Roman slavery, a system that oppresses people, a system that, that takes, strips away the worth and dignity of a person, and instead inviting the church of Colossians to reconsider this system in light of what Christ has accomplished to reconsider it. Slaves are to do everything out of reverence for Jesus and not out of their own self-gain. He says, Paul says, whatever you do, give it your very best as if you were working for the master and not for human beings. Masters are reminded, do what is just and fair for your slaves. Remember that you too have a master in heaven. And both slaves and masters serve the same uppercase M master and are responsible for their own actions. Anyone who does wrong will be paid back for wrongdoing and there'll be no favorites. So slaves who at the time were considered to be you know, they they're, they they don't really have a moral conscience. They can't really do things on their own. They, they're just not really people who can be responsible for anything. Paul's elevating their status and saying, no, do all things out of reverence for God. You are a morally responsible being, and you can do these things, and, and you have a sense of dignity and worth. He's telling masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Be fair to them. He's leveling the playing field here. And I believe that he's he's doing that in the same way that Jesus has done that in his own life and ministry. And in reading this passage, I think we have to look at what comes before it. We have to be reminded that Paul's inviting the church in Colossians and us as well to put off the things that are not of Jesus, to put off selfishness, to put off sexual immorality, to put off sin and idolatry, and instead to put on Christ, to put on humility, to put on love. I think so often within the evangelical church, we can we feel this tension where we feel like we're on one hand saying, well, what matters most is I need to, to put off these things to, to turn and repent. Or, or on the other hand, we see parts of the church that have instead put such an emphasis on the God who liberates and the God who frees people. I think what we see here, when I when I read scripture, I see a more sense of a God who who liberates people, who tells, who decides, I will liberate, I will I will set free my people who are in slavery in Egypt. But He also says, you must come under me, you must turn and repent. You cannot live the way that you are living. We worship a God that, while we are still enemies, He died on the cross for our sins, and yet the same God says, turn and repent to lay down your life and follow me. I think. I think it's not so much a clear divide. I think there's a sense of this tension between the God who liberates and the God who says, to follow me is to live a different life, to no longer be your own master, but instead to follow after me. He does both. He, is, he does both. We need to be people who can hold this tension can hold attention for the God who liberates the oppressed and marginalized and the God who calls us to live differently, to live radically different lives that reflect his goodness and generosity towards us. As fo- followers of Jesus, we are to be motivated by the love of Jesus. We must do what Jesus does, and one of those things is partnering with God and confronting the systems which oppress people and deny their core personhood. Jesus, as we saw, was not afraid to confront the systems he encountered that oppressed people and denied them their personhood. And we too must be people who confront these things boldly. Band, you can join me back up here. Now imagine with me, it's Thanksgiving, and, and it's been a very tense week for, for obvious reasons, but imagine we're, we're coming up on Thanksgiving, we're coming up on Christmas time, we're coming up on potentially difficult conversations. And so this is this is helpful for me to imagine, but imagine you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table. Imagine that you're sitting there and you hear uncle such and such and aunt so and so. You hear them, and whoever insert the names for whoever those people are. It doesn't have to be an aunt and uncle. But you hear them say something about people who um, are of a different ethnicity that's a little dehumanizing. You hear them talk about people who are of a different political view that are dehumanizing or of a different socioeconomic position than they are. I think we have an invitation from God to be people who confront these systems in a way to say, well, what, what does Scripture say? What does Scripture say about these people? That well, all people are made in the image of God, that all people have dignity and worth. And then to ask for wisdom and power to maybe, to maybe speak up and confront that and say, that's, that's interesting. Tell me more about why you believe that. Like, why would you say that about, about the people who, who are of that ethnicity? Why would you say that about this person? We, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. It, it could also be as we, as we look within Fullerton and we talk about different socioeconomic people who are experiencing homelessness, as we talk about people. I think within Fullerton, we have more of a sense of what's going on on the other side of the tracks. We have this kind of divide in Fullerton. We have to be aware of, of what we're thinking about people and also like what, we're, what we're thinking and what we're saying. But I think in those times as we see that, as we maybe confront language that we see other people saying, we have to look at our own hearts. We have to say, what what systems have I joined myself to that I say are what give me worth and value that may be placing one person at a lower status and me at a higher status that caused me to think this way about this person? We We need to ask the Holy Spirit for an awareness to say, what things have I given myself over to that are not of Jesus And whatever you do, give it your very best as if you were working for the master and not for human beings. What is the master that we are serving? We are called to only serve Jesus. We have to be aware of our language. We have to be aware of the things that we believe about people. We have an opportunity within Fullerton to, to partner with organization, organizations who work with marginalized people who are working in parts of our city where there maybe is more of inequality and there is more of this, these different disparities. We have an opportunity to work with solidarity with those united to stand in solidarity with people. We have the opportunity to maybe invite people into our home, into our lives who, who are a part of our family in Jesus who are different than us but we're called to do that as brothers and sisters. And one thing that I think is, is interesting as brothers and sisters is that with the, with the brother and sister relationship is you have the opportunity to, to listen to one another and also challenge one another. You have the opportunity to listen to one another and at times to say, I, I have things that I can, I can partner with you and, and learn from you. And there's other times where it's like, well, let's, let's work through this. Let's actually challenge one another for the sake of moving towards Jesus together to become more like Christ But these are just some ways that we, can, that we can elevate people to have equal footing with us, and some ways that maybe we can ask the Holy Spirit to say, what are ways in which Mercy Commons is leading us to participate in acts of mercy for the common good? but all of this must always flow from being in Jesus, the King who put the powers and principalities to open shame on the cross, the King who has dismantled the the powers of sin and death that have their hold over us, and the King who invites us to submit our life together, the King who holds all things, uh, submit our lives to Him, and the King who holds all things together. He's invited us to put our trust, our faith, our allegiance in Him alone, This king confronts and dismantles the oppressive powers of our own age and invites us to do the same, to join him with them in doing that. He confronts our own hearts and asks us, where have we placed our hope and trust that is not in him? He invites us to To not only dismantle powers, to dismantle systems that oppress people, he invites us to call people to live differently, to tell them of the good news of this king who offers resurrection life, to offers us salvation and forgiveness of sins. He offers that he invites us to do both. So that people can experience new creation and new humanity as they surrender to him. May we partner with Jesus in proclaiming him to be king and partner with those who have come before us throughout scripture and history denouncing that which oppresses people. Jesus, I thank you that you are king. I thank you that you are Lord. I thank you that you are a God who who has created all people with dignity and worth. You are a God who invites your people and reminds them that you have freed them, that you have set them free. You have called them to also be people who who set people free. And you are a God who invites us to live differently than others. You are a God who, who breaks chains that has power in his name, that calls us to be a part of, of offering forgiveness and offering salvation to others. And I pray, Holy Spirit, for wisdom. I pray, Holy Spirit, for boldness. And I pray that we too would be a people who partner with you in bringing um, freedom and bringing, in, in sharing the good news and salvation to, to those who turn to you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.